Today, our lesson is primarily going to be from Matthew chapter 15, although there's um, a parallel account that we'll see in Mark chapter 7 as well. And the, the verses will be on screen, um, but if you want to follow along in your own Bible, we'll be spending most of our time in the Gospel of Matthew. So that's the title of the lesson today. Um, but before we get into the passages here, let's, um, let's get a sense of time and place. Where are we and when are we? So just before the events uh, that we're going to study in Matthew, Jesus was teaching in Gennesaret, um, which is located in the northeastern or northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. In Matthew's chronology, our study passages take place after Jesus was rejected at his hometown of Nazareth, and after people witnessed Jesus feeding 5,000 people, and after the disciples witnessed Jesus walking on water. And in Michael's lesson from two weeks ago, he mentioned that um, some of the Pharisees and some of the scribes had traveled up from Jerusalem, which is about 80 miles, um, to question Jesus. And we have accounts of Jesus, uh, as Michael had said in his lesson, talking about what de defiles a person, uh, not what goes into the person's mouth, but what comes out of the heart. That's what defiles us. And Jesus, once again, angering the Jewish leaders of the time with his teachings, um, decided to get clear of the crowds and his opponents. So he decides to withdraw to the area of uh, Tyre and Sidon, which is probably about 20 to 30 miles to the west on the coast. And it's here in this area that he and we will encounter a woman who Matthew um, calls a Canaanite woman. Um, but in Mark's account of these events, in Mark chapter 7, he identifies her as a Syrophoenician woman. Uh, Syrophoenician can be read as Syrian Phoenician also, and the Phoenicians were a seafaring culture and were the descendants of the Canaanites, who were the original inhabitants of Palestine. But regardless of how she's referred to, either as a Canaanite or a Syrophoenician, the reason she's identified as this is to highlight a few things. First, she's not Jewish. Second, the Canaanites were a group of people who, when Joshua led the children of Israel to the Promised Land, God had ordered the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites. So the Canaanites were sworn enemies of Israel. Three, she was a worshiper of false gods, probably the false goddess of the area, Ashtoreth, who was associated with fertility. Uh, and fourth, probably the worst strike of all, knowing what, what that time uh, was, she was a woman. So she had all of these things going against her from the ancient Jewish point of view. And uh, suddenly, as Jesus is getting away from these people, um, 20 or 30 miles away to the southeast in Gennesaret, this woman just appears on the scene. She's a woman of the wrong people group and of a pagan area and of the wrong religion who the Jews would consider unclean because of her race and because of her beliefs. And worse, as we'll see in the study passages, particularly in verse 26, which I'll bring up soon, she's referred to as a dog. Uh, the Jews of the time referred to the Gentiles as dogs because that's how they saw them, as people who weren't likely entitled to God's blessing, just like a wild dog wouldn't be entitled to any type of handouts from any travelers that it encountered on the road. So with this background in mind, um, Let's imagine what this scene would look like in the present, as in today, October 9, 2022. And so 
just an example, Jesus, let's say, since this is the Bay Area, is preaching in the Castro Valley, Lake Chabot area. And uh, there's been ma there's a massive crowds there right now, and, these, and there's also some folks who've come up from, and using Michael's example, Gilroy, to question him and, and harass him um, with, with questions, because they don't like what he's saying. Um, because it, it goes against their traditions and that, that they've held and put in place for the past few hundred years. So Jesus decides to come to our area of the city. In fact, he cuts through the parking lot here, and he decides to come in here to our worship assembly here at Lake Merced Church of Christ. Um, and the Gospel of Mark says that, at least in, in the parallel account, that he actually enters a house because he didn't want uh, anyone to know that he was there, but people figured it out. We see this, we see this gentleman walk in with, with several people with him and say, hey, isn't that the, the, the Nazarene guy that, that we Suddenly the folks at New North realize who he is, and so now they're, they're all massing in, into our worship assembly here, and they're, they're piling in, and we're hoping that he's going to say something, and so we gather around because we want to listen to what he's going to say because we've heard that he is this wise teacher. But just as he starts to teach, this woman interrupts him, and she draws attention to herself, crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And, and we've all heard of Jesus. We know his reputation. There's been talk of his miracles that have preceded him. We've also heard of the feeding of the 5,000 people. We've heard that he's restored sight to the blind, that he speaks in parables better than any of the Jewish teachers of the law. And we're probably thinking, yeah, he might actually do something for this woman. We might see a miracle happen before our eyes. And so the translation of verse 22 in the original Greek indicates that this woman didn't just say it once, but she kept on saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Over and over again. And yet Jesus' response is that he is silence. He says nothing. And now things are starting to get a little awkward as we're looking at this situation. She keeps wailing and wailing and wailing, and he says nothing. And it gets to the point where the disciples are now begging Jesus in verse 23, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. They're, they're, they're saying to him, Lord, this, this woman just won't shut up. Send her away. If you're not going to do anything, get rid of her. She's causing a scene. This is embarrassing. Send her away. Get her, get, you know, soon, soon the people are going to hear us out there on Brotherhood Way. They're probably going to call the, call the police, and we don't need that type of attention. That's what we just got away from over there in Castro Valley. Just, just get rid of her. But finally, Jesus does say something. And he says, I was only sent, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so there's probably some of us witnessing this right now who are seeing this unfold and our hearts are sinking, thinking that this miracle worker is only a miracle worker for the Jews, that because she's not Jewish, he's not going to help her at all. We had our hopes up, hoping to hear something wise, hoping to see something happen, and he just shot that all down. And that's actually the, the reality of ministries as we understand them. Ministries have priorities. Jesus' ministry was no exception. When Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the good news of God's kingdom, he actually told them in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now this woman decides to do something else. She won't stop begging him. 
So in verse 25, she comes and she kneels before him saying, Lord, help me. Now she's on her knees begging him, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. Who could, uh, who, which one of us could say no to that? Which one of us wouldn't be moved by that? But we see it just gets worse for her because Jesus responds in verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And I'd already mentioned how the Jews referred to the non-Jews as dogs. The, the, the term the Jews often used for non-Jews meant a wild dog that was running around the countryside, attacking small animals, attacking people. It's a type of dog that you may have thrown a rock at, um, either for fun or just to scare it off. It's that kind of mangy, rotten canine that you wouldn't miss if it died. And yet this woman's response to Jesus is very surprising in verse 27. She says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus' answer is even more surprising. He answers her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So non-Jews like her were considered so non-spiritual that if a Jew of that time stood in her presence, it would have made that Jewish person spiritually unclean. For the longest time, this, this set of, this passage actually drove me crazy because I, I didn't like reading it. I, I didn't like the, the fact that, that um, it referred to, to basically non-Jews as dogs. Does that, does that mean we're all considered dogs because we're not the children of Israel? No, because the Greek word for dog in verses 26 and 27 is kunarion. It's also spelled, there's an alternate spelling that sometimes the, the Y is replaced with a U. So the literal translation of kunarion is puppy. That's not a joke, it's, that's actually the literal translation. But we know that the Greek words typically have a deeper meaning to them. So kunarion didn't just mean puppy or little dog. Um, it also meant household pet. So this was a dog that was a member of the family and it lived in the house with the family. If the Lord Jesus Christ had used the word kuon, uh, K-U-O-N, that would have literally meant, literally meant dog and in the most derogatory sense, referencing the dogs that we mentioned, the ones that are running in packs, attacking people out in the countryside and attacking children. So now that we have an idea the, of what the Lord Jesus Christ actually said to her, that it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the household pets. Let's have a look at what this scene would have appeared to us if we were witnesses 2,000 years ago with that understanding. And we'll look at the lessons that we can learn from this woman. So first, and we'll, we'll have the two parallel translations there. Um, Matthew 22, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So let, let's draw our attention first to the word behold. It's interesting that Matthew uses the word because in our modern vernacular, we're, look, it, it's, it's kind of, it, we're looking at something maybe magnificent or impressive like a monument or a mountain or some sweeping vista when the word translated from the original Greek is the word I do. And it means to fix your eyes with great care and observe something because that thing you're going to observe is very important. So it isn't a sight that we look at passively. Um, it, this is something that you really need to focus on and pay attention to. 
This is something that you can't miss. Just like when John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew is saying to us, this is very important. Pay attention. Pay close attention. Don't miss this. Because this is a Canaanite woman, a descendant of the enemies of Israel who is coming to the Messiah for a miracle. So she finds Jesus and is crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She calls him Lord and son of David. And in Mark's uh, account there, it says that she heard of him. So what does this tell us about her? What this tells us is, like many nominal Christians today, she has a limited view, a limited idea of who Jesus is. She probably heard the stories and the legends of a Jewish Messiah descended from the line of King David, this miracle-working guy who was healing the sick and casting out demons. But seeing Jesus as only a miracle worker or a healer, as someone who can see to our physical needs, that is a very inadequate view of who Jesus is. The modern, the modern world and a growing number of modern churches have taken Jesus and they've relegated him to just the, that dude I pray to when I need something, the, the guy I pray to when I've got myself into a problem. Or, or some people, they have this little statue of Jesus on the cross and they put it somewhere on their shelf and they pay attention to it maybe once in a while. But when they're in trouble, they grab that thing and they hug that thing like it's a life preserver. When we do that, Jesus becomes just this great man with some spiritual gifts. Someone who's going to free us from our financial problems, someone's going to free us from our family problems or problems with our Roman occupiers. This isn't diminishing what her concerns were. Her daughter was under, under the grip of satanic power. Such evil is to be taken seriously and not toyed with. And more than likely, this woman's pagan religion, and all, with all of its false gods and false beliefs and false idols, probably brought her daughter's condition. Thus, she seeks Jesus out. But she has a wrong idea of who Jesus is. And no, notice that she also says, oops, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. When we say, have mercy on me to others, what does it mean? It, it typically means, be kind to me. Show me some compassion. Hear me out. Pardon me if I've made a mistake. And we say that typically to someone in authority, maybe a parent or to someone we've wronged or to a judge or to a law enforcement officer who's about to give us a citation. Have mercy on me. Be kind to me. Be kind to me, one person to another. And so what happens next? It says, he did not answer her a word. And we've all experienced that type of silence. We're, we're falling, we're faltering spiritually, physically, financially, emotionally. We've lost someone we care about. We've lost our job, our bank accounts, just basically have pennies. We're desperate. A hurricane has wiped out everything we have and the only home we've ever known has been washed out into, into the ocean. And we cry out to God, and heaven is silent. We pray, and we pray, and we pray, and no answer comes. Why was this person crippled in an accident? Why did I get this bad medical report? Why can't that person get off of the booze? Why, why can't she stop doing hard drugs? Why, why can't I get a break? Why did that woman reject me as a suitor? Why, why did that guy that she was dating just dump her for someone else? We ask why and why and why and why, 
and heaven is silent. Are my prayers not good, good enough, is what we start asking ourselves. Have I not prayed enough? Does God even hear me? Why is heaven so silent? And so he did not answer her word. And the next thing we see is that his disciples are come to him and they beg him, saying, send her away because she's crying out after us. So they're trying to get rid of her. But just as they're saying this, Jesus speaks. And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And don't his words sound kind of strange when he says the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I mean, and he said it earlier in Matthew 10, which I, which I um, read earlier, because the Pharisees and the scribes, they certainly didn't think they were lost sheep. They had their traditions and their laws, so how could they be lost? Instead, his statement really invites a response from her. And so what's her response? She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She knelt before him. So the assumption then is that when she said, have mercy on me in the previous verse, she was standing. Now she's on her knees. The Greek word translates this in English as to kneel, literally. But the Greek word expands that word, uh, which is proskunao. And that word actually with the expanded meaning means to bow down in reverence and worship. So now she's beginning to understand just who this person is who's standing before her. He's more than just a man. And so she says, Lord, help me. This is no longer a plea for help from one human being to another. It becomes an intercessory prayer by a mother for her child to someone higher than her. And it becomes her acknowledgement that she herself needs help. At what point do we have to be at when Jesus would help us? Well, it's at the point when we know we can't save ourselves, when we know we can't help ourselves, when we need someone greater than us to save us. But Jesus still isn't done with her yet. So now he says, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the pet dog. So this is from the Amplified Translation, which on occasion will expand on the original Greek, or what is implied in the original Greek. So the, the bread that Jesus refers to in this verse could be a subtle reference to himself as the bread of life. Jesus's mission was to reach out and feed the Jews first, that the Jews would have the first opportunity to accept him as their Messiah. And through the Jews would come salvation for the non-Jews. But what is the Lord Jesus Christ doing here? He's answering her with a parable of sorts. First silence, then saying that he only came for the lost sheep of Israel. And now this. But what's he really doing here? He's not playing games with her. What he's doing is he's drawing out her faith. He's testing her faith. He's strengthening her faith. And her response shows just how much her faith in him has grown because she answers with a parable of sorts of her own. Where she says, Yes, Lord, but even the pet dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the young master's table. So she understands now that even though the non-Jews sit at the proverbial table, or uh, sit at, can't sit at the proverbial table, that they can't dine first, pieces of that bread will still fall off that table and the little pets can eat them up. In fact, the pets had the right to eat those crumbs, is what she's saying. And according to scholars, this woman is the only person in scripture who answered one of Jesus' many parables with her own mini parable. 
And this woman actually, she replies with the words, uh, but even, or in some translations, it's yet even. What she's saying is that she didn't intend to challenge what the Lord Jesus Christ said. She agreed with the truthfulness of his statement. And she agreed with him that the lost sheep of Israel did come first. And they were lost sheep because the Jews of that time, they didn't receive Jesus. They rejected his message and they rejected the bread that was offered, opting instead for their traditions, which brought them no salvation at all. So could you imagine what would have happened if this woman replied any differently? What if she said, well, how dare you call me a household pet? You don't talk to me that way. What do you think the Lord Jesus Christ's response would have been to her? Would he have spoken to her more? Probably not, because then she's addressing him from a position of pride. She would have been addressing him just as Jesus' own people had addressed him. And we all know, based on scripture, how, Jesus, uh, how, the, how God deals with people who are proud. Though it's interesting, to know, it's interesting to note, too, that Jesus doesn't directly address her humility in this text. And yet we know that unbelief tends to breed pride just as much as humility gives birth to faith. So now Jesus answers her. And he says, so we've got both versions up there. Woman, your faith, and the Amplifier is expanding on what faith is, your personal trust and confidence in my power is great, and it will be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that moment. And you can see the parallel there in Matthew's account where the translation implies that the Lord Jesus Christ is commending her for her humility and faith. So can anyone name another person in the New Testament who received a compliment like this from the Lord Jesus Christ? That other, well, there, there's only one other person who actually did, and that's the centurion. Interestingly enough, also, also a non-Jew, and that's um, cataloged in Matthew chapter 8, where the centurion, where the Lord Jesus Christ um, tells the crowd, he doesn't tell the centurion specifically, he tells the crowd, never have I found such faith in all of Israel. But here, the Lord Jesus Christ commends this woman directly, woman, your faith is great. And while in Israel, Jesus encountered people who were superficial religious fakes, they were worshiping as a matter of ritual um, instead of with their whole heart, and yet over a hundred miles north of Jerusalem, in a pagan enclave, he finds a woman of great faith. And the only thing possibly missing from these accounts in Matthew or in Mark are the reactions of the, of the disciples um, as to what was unfolding in front of them. Um, you have to ask, well, what was their reaction? Because this must have completely shocked them. Um, Pastor Mark Aiken wrote about this passage and commented that Many Jews of that time suffered from what he calls the Jonah complex, where they just could not believe that God would extend his salvation outside the borders of Israel. Jonah didn't think the people of Nineveh were, were worth saving. That's, that's why he hopped on a boat and he ran and ended up getting swallowed by a large fish and brought back to complete his mission. God saw the Ninevites as worth saving. And by doing what he did, the Lord Jesus Christ basically took the disciples' beliefs and the beliefs of all those who were listening. And he took their beliefs, he took their biases, and he took their mindsets and threw it all upside down, proving that he is not the savior of just one nation, 
but the savior of all nations and all people groups and all ethnicities. So I want to leave you with some food for thought. Um, four things, four additional things we can learn about this woman and three questions that we can ask ourselves. So the first is that she cared about someone other than herself. Uh, in fact, her daughter's plight became her own plight. Uh, and, and it wasn't because she couldn't get any rest or that um, her daughter's demonic oppression was making her look bad to those who knew her, but because this was her child. This is very different from how a lot of people pray. A lot of prayers today in the modern church would be very similar to how this first woman approached Jesus. Have mercy on me. I got myself into a jam. I want, this, I want this get out of jail free card, Jesus. Uh, please give it to me. A lot of prayers are, Jesus, what can you do for me? Second thing, she went to the only one who could save her daughter. Where were her pagan gods? Clearly they were useless because the demon was still oppressing her daughter. No other religion, no other gods have or had the power to save her or her daughter or anyone else. And when your gods and your idols don't answer, then what do you do? That's hopelessness. Who do you turn to when you have no earthly hope? You turn from your false gods, you turn from your false beliefs, and you turn to Jesus, who is your only true hope. Third thing, she interceded for her daughter. And a, a few of you have told me recently that you've interceded for others in prayer. Um, what does it mean to intercede for someone, uh, intercessory prayer specifically. It means that you stand in the gap for someone and you don't give up. You pray for that person until something happens, no matter the outcome. And you pray and you pray and you pray and you continue to pray until an answer comes. Um, often when we pray, we take silence to mean no, but God does answer prayers in his own timing and according to his own sovereign will. And the fourth thing, she grew in her faith and understanding of who Jesus really was. So faith has to come alive in a person before the Lord Jesus Christ can act in their lives in any way. And this woman, she needed freedom from her oppression and from her false religious beliefs and from her pagan, pagan gods as much as her daughter did. So Jesus had to awaken and strengthen her faith. And in all things, whether you're directly struggling with something or interceding on behalf of someone else, Jesus is interested in your faith and growing your faith in him and him alone. And we all know that affliction more often than not is one of the only ways our faith can grow. And, and the affliction, while it's never while it's never pleasant in the moment, could actually be a blessing in disguise. And now, three questions that we can ask ourselves. Can you say that you've honestly loved someone as much as she did? The love of a father for his wife and children is powerful, and the love of a mother for her child is nearly immeasurable. The disciples wanted to send her away because she was causing a scene and because she was a Gentile and seen as unworthy of any type of salvation because she was different. Can you look at someone and see them as being worthy of God's love, regardless of their current religious affiliation, regardless of their lifestyle, 
regardless of how they dress, how they look, what they do for a living, how different their traditions are than yours, where they were born, where they live, whether they disagree with you on some little matter of ritual or not. Because you know your, the job that you have, it will not love you back. That car you have will not love you back. Your house or however many houses you own will not love you back. Your traditions will not love you back. Your religious affiliation and denomination will not love you back. That piece of tech that you have that you spend a lot of time obsessing over will not love you back. I mean, a few years ago, there was a fellow photographer who got a new camera and he knew all of the specifications of that new camera and he kept saying, I love this camera, despite the fact that the photos he took with the new camera were just, they looked exactly the same as the photos he took with the old camera. And we all wanted to say to him, well, do you put that camera across from you at the dining table and have date night with it? And this guy almost answered yes to that. Only another human being created just like you in the image of God can and will love you back. And I would impress upon, upon you that demeaning another person because you, who you hardly know solely because of their differences is about as far from the heart of God as you can get. And Jesus knew this woman's heart. He knew the stressful days and the tireless nights that she endured dealing with her daughter's demonic uh, oppression, while all the disciples saw was just a Canaanite dog. So can you honestly love someone as much as this woman did, as much as Jesus did? And have you ever experienced that type of love before, where someone just interceded for you and you knew that you took comfort in the fact that they were just there? They, they, they brought that comfort to you and, and you were comforted by the fact, knowing that they were praying for you. And when you looked at them in the face, their face just kind of faded away and you saw you saw a love, a love that transcends time and space, a love that resembles the, faith of a, uh, the, the face of a man hanging from a cross, looking down on you with love. Second question. When you cry out, do you cry out to the one true God as revealed in scripture? Or do you cry out to a God of your own making? You cannot say, I know God, and yet have never picked up this book outside of Sunday and regularly uh, you read it or you study it on your own. I mean, John, Michael, Nathaniel, and I, we, we can teach and we can reveal spiritual truths um, and we can reveal the character of Christ to you in our lessons and through Bible studies. And, and that's what we're charged to do. But if you don't open this book regularly outside of Sundays, then you only know of Jesus. You don't know, personally know Jesus. True faith acknowledges who Jesus is, just as Thomas did in John chapter 20, verse 28, when he said, my Lord and my God. God will not deny genuine humility in people who cry out to him. And I, we have to emphasize genuine humility because sadly there's way too many virtue signalers out there claiming to be humble followers of Christ when they're not. And many people, they cry and they cry out to a God, but many people don't know the God who they're crying out to. Are, are we crying out to a miracle worker or are we crying out to the creator of the universe? Because if you spend time in this Bible, outside of Sunday mornings, either in a Bible study or on your own, scripture will reveal to you who you're crying out to 
And when God reveals himself to you through the Bible, he will shake the foundations of your life and break those foundations down, whether you like it or not. Just like he did on that day when a desperate mother approached him and begged him to heal her daughter. And third and final question. When God answers, will you be satisfied with the crumbs that fall from the table? When this woman sought out the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus was more concerned about growing her faith than he was about granting her request. She asked for mercy. She made no claims of entitlement or self-righteousness, and she made no demands. She knew she was deserving of absolutely nothing, but she knew that the children actually don't eat everything. And in this case, 2,000 years ago, most of the people in Israel didn't even want the bread. And she's basically saying, I want what they don't want. They had a taste of Jesus, and they didn't want the rest. This woman saw the bread. It was already bitten into, broken to pieces, pushed off the table and onto the floor, and she knew that Jesus was the bread that she needed. Do you see the same? What's left may be crumbs, maybe words on a page, um, and they just look like words on a page for everyone else. But the crumbs are the way to life and to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can lead us to everlasting life. Uh, I'll bring this to a close with just a few verses from the end of uh, the musical Les Miserables, where it's actually sung. Take my hand and lead me to salvation. Take my love, for love is everlasting. And remember the truth that once was spoken. To love another person is to see the face of God. So um, as Nathaniel leads us in our final song, just because uh, to love another person is, is to see the face of God is the entire theme of Les Miserables. And it's one of the themes that uh, we can learn from this this woman who, whose faith was so great and yet uh, the others around her did not see her as worthy of salvation. But she is and we are. And we are because of the Lord. We are worthy of salvation. We are worth saving because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done.